Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We've already prayed over the Word. We welcome visitors. Let us get into the Word of God tonight. Praise God. My wife and I were sharing this morning. We got up and just talking about the Word of God and walking by faith and why I believe. I really believe that, that you know, I know the Bible. I don't have to believe this. I know the Bible says that, <clears throat> that there comes a time when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So that what's not of God will shake and fall. What is of God will stand. And I believe we're going through one of those times right now. And, and this is what the Lord spoke to me. He says, whatever is not of faith will shake. Whatever is not based on this word can be shaken. But the word of God cannot be shaken. So when you live your life by faith in this word, you cannot be shaken. Anything that shakes you is something that you're not based, not based on faith in this word. You know, all of us, because we live in a, in a, we've lived in a culture and a nation that's been so blessed and so provi- provided for and so easy. We've had it so easy that we haven't had to walk by faith. We can walk by confidence in the bank we got our money in and confidence in where the stock market is, confidence in our employer. They're just institutions that we've grown up in our lives to have confidence in that they're always going to be there and we can always count on them. And what we're discovering is that's not so. And when something that you've had confidence in disappears or gets shaken or turns out to not be who you thought they were or what you thought they were, it can begin to shake you because that shows you that some of your foundation was standing on that person, that institution, whatever it is. So instead of being alarmed, realize it's a wake-up call, I need to make sure that I'm standing on what is unshakable, and that is the Word of God. And you can only do that by walking by faith and not by what you see, and not by how you feel, and not by what somebody tells you, but it's by the Word of God alone. And God's training us to walk by that. So whatever you're going through tonight, if you feel shaken, and if you feel, understand this, that, that God may well be behind the shakening or at least allowing it to happen. I'm not saying causes suffering. I'm not saying causing you to be sick. I'm not saying that. But the, it's a sign that you've built your life or part of your life on something other than faith in God's Word. So it's a time to make that adjustment. The good news is, if you do this, go, <gasps> that means you're alive. As long as, now listen to me carefully. As long as you're alive, you can change. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, as long as you're alive, you can change because the Spirit of the living God is in you. Now, you can change. Whether you will is up to you. Praise the Lord. Did I give enough time to find Ephesians chapter 6? All right. We're studying the, the armor of God. And I'll read down through these verses and then we'll go into the, the part of the armor we're talking about tonight. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. <clears throat> For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, as a result of this, take up the whole entire armor of God that you may be able to stand or withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We'll stop right there. It's talking about the armor of God and the purpose of the armor of God is because this, these verses tell us, if you have not already discovered, is that you are in some form of spiritual battle. We talked about the fact that Paul writes this at the end of, the, of this letter to the Ephesians, having spent the first three chapters telling them all that God has done for them, who they are in Christ, some of the, most, the richest verses in the Bible are chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then chapter 3 is also, but especially chapter 1. Some of the richest descriptions of what God has, do, has already done for us. All those promises, if you look in there, they're in the past tense, the past perfect tense, which means in the Greek, they were done one time and have an effect for all time, once and for all. And so in amazing things, then he begins in chapter 4 to talk about as a result, this is how we need to see ourselves, and then he talks about how we act this out in our personal relationships with each other, within a family structure, within a, within a working relationship, and within a church relationship, and having gone through all of that, now he says, as a result, you're going to end to find yourself that you are in spiritual warfare. So you find yourself in spiritual warfare for one of two reasons. Either you've done something wrong, or you're doing something right. <laughs> kind of like you're blessed going in. Because, and the reason is, the devil doesn't care about you. He cares about the God that's in you and the word that's in you. He knows what that word can do. Understand this. The, this teaches us some basic things. First of all, it tells us that we are in a spiritual warfare. Secondly, it tells us that the weapons of our warfare, what our weapons are and what the enemies, our enemies' weapons are. Our weapons are the power of God. His weapon is deceit. He has no power over you. If he had it, he would have stopped you from getting saved. But since he couldn't stop you to get, from being saved, that says he has no... That doesn't mean he doesn't have power... He has all kinds of power because he's the God of this world. But he doesn't have power over you once you come to Christ because the Bible says you were delivered from the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1.13. That's his dominion, Satan's dominion. And you were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's God's kingdom. You are a member of God's kingdom. And, and the Bible says that our king has defeated the enemy and our job is to do the mopping up until his, he's seated and he's seated until his enemy has made his footstool. That's our responsibility as the church. And that's what part of this warfare is all about. The next thing we learn is who our enemy is. It's not the person sitting to your left or the person sitting to your right or that deadbeat you left at home <laughs> that you think is so unspiritual and is dragging you down. It's, it's, it's not a person. If they're wearing flesh and blood, they're not your enemy. I'm going to say that again. If they're wearing flesh and blood, they're not your enemy. Now, your enemy may use them, but remember, he's a deceiver. So he wants you to fight the wrong enemy. So as long as he's got you fighting some person, you're fighting the wrong enemy, and therefore you're giving him place. We've learned all that. Then we begin to see, all right, God has provided for us 
His armor. It's the armor of God. It's God's own armor that He has provided for us. And since it's His armor, it works and it's successful in the spiritual warfare. So we don't need to be defeated in any area of our life in spiritual warfare because God's given us His armor. The only way we'll be defeated is if we don't put it on and use it the correct way. Because it's God's provision for His church to succeed. And God's will is for His church to overcome. The Bible says... Christ always leads us in triumph. says in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. That doesn't sound out to me that God's hope is that we're going to just barely get by. In fact, the, 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 the standard that Jesus uses when He gives a report card for the churches in, in Revelation is to Him who overcomes, not Him who survives. Overcoming means you win. Survival means you hang on to the end. Jesus is not coming back for a survival church. He's coming back for a victorious, glorious church, and that church is you and me. So therefore, He's got to help us to become victorious. And all the power of God is available to do that. And not only that, God gives us His instructions of all we need to do to be victorious. So the reasons we struggle and fail is always because we're not taking His instructions and applying them in our life. So that's in, that's what this, there's other things to do, but what we're studying is this armor of God. So we've looked, and I've talked, I've seen studies done before, I've heard studies done, you know, about, you know, getting up in the morning and you put on your belt of truth and you put on your, you know, your breastplate, and that's nice symbolism. But what this literally is, is it is, this is putting on God Himself. These are all part of God's character. And Paul tells us in several places that once you're born again, we're born, as God's, born again as God's children. His nature is in us. And so Paul says in most of his letters when he's addressing churches, he says, as a result of who you are, he spends the first half of the letter talking about this is who you are. You are a child of God. Because you're a child of God, God's nature is in you. Then the rest of the letter is now saying, act like who you are. Act like a child of God. In other words, act like... God Himself. Sometimes He uses these words, therefore put on Christ. You don't put Him on from the outside, you put Him on from the inside. You just act like Him. You have to do that by faith because many times I don't feel as if I can act that way. We saw back in, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has this incredible standard for us. He says, he says we, we, instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he says, what you're to do is love your neighbor. And not just love your neighbor, he says, the Gentiles do that. We're to love our enemies. We're to bless those that hurt us and pray for those, this is a tough one, that spitefully use us. I've had some people spitefully use me, and I don't feel like praying for them. I don't feel as if I'm capable of loving them or blessing them. So I do it by faith. Because His Word says to, if He says to do it, then I can do it. And I found when I begin to act as if this Word is true, the ability's there. That's what we mean by walking by faith.
So you put this on by faith. We looked at the first part, which is truth. And we saw the reason that's the key is because God is truth. And when you walk in truth, you walk in God. When you try to solve your own challenges with your own way and you step out outside of truth and you kind of spin something or you may bend the truth a little bit, now what you do is you step outside of God and you step into the enemy's territory because he's a deceiver. He bends the truth, twists the truth, spins the truth. We're not going to dwell on there. Then we spend some time looking at the breastplate of righteousness because what that does is protect your heart. We saw it says in Proverbs that we are to protect our heart because out of our heart flow the issues of life. Satan's weapons are designed to sow seeds. We're going to see what he's trying to do is put fiery darts in your heart. And we talked about that. So this righteousness is two parts to it. First of all, it's living right before God because when you're living right before God, the enemy cannot accuse you legally. If you're not living right before God, he has something to accuse you about. So you've taken down the shield and you've given him a fair shot to shoot you. The other side of righteousness is when you are living right, But he begins to condemn you by blaming you and criticizing you and discouraging you by telling you you're not right before God even when you are. And that's condemnation. And that's trying to get you discouraged by planting seeds of doubt in your heart so he steals your confidence before God. Because if he can get your confidence down, then you put your weapons down. When you put your weapons down, you have no defense against him. And so we looked at that. We looked at how to discern the difference between conviction, which is the Spirit of God telling you you're not living right, and, the, and condemnation, which is the devil telling you, accusing you falsely. And then we began to look at this next piece, which is shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And what we saw is that what that means, and I've heard all kinds of studies, and I've studied it out in the Greek and in other uh, in commentaries, but when I just step back and look at what the Scripture is talking about, the context, what he's talking about here is pieces of armor to help you stand in a battle. And what your feet, the condition of your feet and what's on your feet determines how well you can stand. So that if you're trying to stand in some kind of battle and you've got a bunion or you've got pain in your feet or something like that. I had a, years ago, I had a, a condition in my body, and I've shared it with you because of how God healed me with this condition where I, would, I could be in a, in a court standing arguing case, and I'd suddenly have an itching at the bottom of my feet, and within five minutes, the bottom of my foot would have swelled up so I couldn't stand on it. Now, you know what? When you're arguing a case, that's distracting. You're trying to present somebody's case. You're in a, in a legal battle and now your, your whole attention's on this foot whether I'm going to be able to stand on it. It itched, it hurt, it became... And what happened is it took my peace. And what peace does is peace is a foundation for being able to stand still at a time of battle. If you can't keep still, it's easy to get knocked over. And so this part of armor is where you put on the peace, which is the peace of God, the preparation, the standing, the steadfastness of the gospel, the good news of peace. And we began to look at peace from several aspects. The first aspect we looked at really over the last two weeks is the first thing is that peace is God's nature. God is peace. And we understood it when we went back in the Old Testament and we looked at the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. 
And shalom means more than, it means peace in the sense of tranquility or lack of, or, or lack of, 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 of fighting, but it also means wholeness, health, well-being. In the Hebrew mind, they didn't divide things into pieces. You either, it was all or nothing. You either were whole or you were not whole. You were either well or you were not well. And if you were well spiritually but not well physically, you were not well. The Greek minds divided things up into categories. So in the Greek mind, you were capable of being spiritually well but physically ill. But the Hebrew mind and the Hebrew language doesn't divide that up. And you stop and think about it. To be whole is to be whole. If, there's, if you go out and you've got three good tires and one flat tire when you get in the parking lot, it's great you've got three good tires, but the fact that you don't have four good tires means you're not whole. Because whole means whole. So if it's not whole, this is heavy stuff now, if it's not whole, it's not, this is not a trick, it's whole. Let's try that again. This, this group may be more awake. If it's not whole, it's not whole. All right, okay. Make sure you write that down. God's nature, we discovered, is wholeness. When he created the Garden of Eden, it was whole. When he created man, he was whole. Everything he creates is whole. It's complete. It's integrated together. Wholeness doesn't just mean all the parts are there. <laughs> it means they're all put together correctly. I'm laughing because when I, I, I have a natural curiosity and my wife keeps me in balance. But before I was married and when I was a kid, I got in all kinds of trouble just because I take things apart, whether they were mine or not. And I remember we had, my mother had this old wind-up alarm clock with the bells on the top, you know. There was a time, you know, she and I were living with her parents for a while and, I, I, you know, she had, she'd use it to, for a practical purpose, like telling the time. I had to figure out how it worked. And it had screws on the back, and I found a screwdriver. My grandfather had all kinds of screws. So I remember I, while she was at work one day, I took the back off because I had to figure out how this thing worked. Of course, you know what happens. Boing! All the pieces come out. And so I got them all back. Well, I got most of them back in there. I mean, it looked good when you put the, you know, you could get the, the back, but I had these three or four pieces left over. So they were essentially all in there. But my mind did have this question run through it. If the manufacturer put all of them in there, he must have had a purpose for these four that are still sitting on the top of the dresser. So maybe something's wrong. Well, when I went to wind it up, I found out it would not only would it, you know, wouldn't it run, it wouldn't wind up. The pieces were in there. So all the pieces were there but they weren't put in the right spot for their function. So they weren't integrated together. I've read somewhere, and I've tried to find it, so I'm going to just tell you honestly, I can't tell you where the source is, but I have read somewhere that the Greek word for peace, which I know is irene, has as its origin knitting back two broken pieces together, which would fit in. Because it means wholeness. So we studied that God's nature is wholeness. He doesn't create anything that's not whole and entire and complete 
and functioning. Therefore, anything that comes in to pull apart that wholeness or disrupt its parts working together is not of God. And we're going to see down the road, that's why unity in the church is so important. But we'll get there. We're headed there. Then we begin to look at God's, not only is it God's nature, it's God's provision for us. And we looked at scriptures, and and, and now we're going to look at the second aspect of this. Because all of these are necessary to have your feet planted in peace. All of this peace is necessary for you to be able to fight successfully in this spiritual warfare. Because without peace, you're distracted. You're distracted in the battle. We're going to really see that clearly tonight. Okay. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at the second aspect of peace and what that means, the second application of it. This is part of the Christmas story, so it's appropriate. We're getting close to that. Very very close. (laughs) Extremely close to that season. In fact, the department stores believe we're in it. I don't want to go back and read all of this, but verse 13. And suddenly, this is the, the, the angels, the, the, the shepherds out in the fields. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. This is being announced by a choir of angels from heaven. And they're sing, saying this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. This is often misquoted and as quoted as saying, and peace among men. But it says, God is announcing that by this birth of His Son, He is announcing peace from God towards man. So the second aspect of peace that's essential to being standing and, ha- and being well grounded in battle is being established that you are in peace with God. That between you and God, there's peace. Now this is somewhat related to what we studied about righteousness. But it's a different approach to it in a different way where we live it out. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. And this is so essential for not just standing, but for accomplishing what God has us here to do. Romans 5, not 15. Now, here's a very, very deep insight. Romans chapter 5 follows Romans chapter 4. You got that? Romans chapter 4 is one of the clearest descriptions of faith that there is in the Bible. And the reason Paul puts this description in chapter 4 is because in chapter 3, he's announced that there's two methods that are available to man to get into right relationship with God. The one is to completely and perfectly and absolutely every moment of your life fulfill the law. It's called righteousness by the law. But then he goes on to tell us we all failed. Romans chapter 3 says, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So we'd all disqualified under that method. Say, so why, why did God give us a method for getting there when he knew none of us could get there? Because he gave us that method because that method relies on your own efforts, on your abilities, on what you can do to please God. And God knows us well enough to know we've got to have a shot at it. And so the law is, in essence, our shot at trying to show God how good we can be on our own. Because what the law does is give us his standard. Not our standard, not our neighbor's standard, not the world's standard. See, our standard for each other is relative to the best person you know. So we all get into a group, maybe in your connect group or in your family, and somewhere in the back of your mind you have this hierarchy of where you fit in with how righteous everybody is. You wouldn't use the word righteous. You'd say, you know, how committed they are, how devoted they are, whether they're a good Christian or not. And you have your idea of whether you're a better Christian than they are or they're a better Christian than you are because we're comparing ourselves, Paul says this, by ourselves. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't compare you by me or me by you or me by, the, by Kenneth Hagin or me by somebody else or you by somebody else. He compares us by him. Huh. And he just wants to let you know, if you're going to do this yourself, here's your standard. Not me, but him. Your standard's my holiness. And the law is taking his holiness and putting it in concrete, practical do's and don'ts. And then he says, not only do you have to just hit that at one moment of your life, but you've got to do it 24-7 your whole life. And obviously we can't. And that's to prepare us for the second method of making our of being right relationship with God, and that is by receiving the free gift of righteousness that He's given to us through Christ Jesus. And then He explains that gift, as every gift of God, is received by faith. So now what He has to do is explain to them what this faith is. And this is where a lot of Christians miss it. We may just stop here tonight. A lot of Christians understand what I've told you so far. And if you ask them, they could quote, Rome, they could quote you know, Ephesians 2, 4 through 8, that we're justified by faith and by grace and by, through, received by faith. They could tell you we're saved by grace, received. They could say that, but we don't live that way. We know we're saved by God's grace. But that salvation is received in our life as an experience. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, when you get up and you don't feel as holy as you feel right now, it's received by faith. Most of us receive it by feelings. We know that we're saved by faith, but that's not what the Word says. You're saved by grace. The method by which you're saved is God's grace which sent Christ to the cross. That grace is received by faith. So God can give you something that you don't receive. And that's what Galatians is written about. That's what most of Hebrews is written about. And half of Romans is written about. Is receiving this gift by faith. 
Now, if the only way you can receive this is by faith, then it's important that we understand what that faith is and how it works. Does, does that make sense to you? Say yes. It makes sense to me. Okay, all right. Make me feel better. All right. And that's what Romans 4 is all about. And we're not going to take the time to go through this now, but we probably will when we get to the next piece of armor, which is the shield of faith. But that's what shows chapter 4 tells us exactly what faith is and how it works in our lives, especially when it comes to a promise that God has made. Having explained that now, he goes, and of course he didn't write this in chapters and verses, but having explained that now, he goes into what we've identified as chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified. Now we're talking about having peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have, not will have, not might have, we have right now peace with God. We have right now Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take this apart because this is a profound statement that we read over so quickly and then we struggle because we don't apply this in our lives. Therefore, We've taught you. That means we've got to understand what's gone before it because that's what, this is based, that's what this is based on. Having been justified by faith, we have now peace with God. Let me ask you this question. According to the Bible, this now we're talking about people who have come to Christ, that have come to Him, given their life to Him. So I'm assuming that's what we're talking to. The Bible says when you do that, you've been justified. So how many of you here tonight are justified? Okay, that means you've been made right with God. Simply by believing that Jesus died for you and paid for your sins. Simply by believing, that's what faith is. The promise God made. Because in that promise, when you believe it, it now applies to you. And this word says from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that if that's happened to you, if you have been justified, then you have now peace with God. Now, peace requires two sides to it. There's God's side where He's not angry, where He's at peace with you. And then there's our side where we accept that peace and we have peace back with Him. Because there are many people walking around that God's at peace with them and they're not at peace with God. They're mad at Him. They're frustrated with Him. They feel condemned by Him. But this word says that if you've come to Christ, He's at peace with you. 
Now, maybe it's my legal training. Probably is. But I, I, I want to know the, the source of who's telling me something and whether they have the authority to back it up. See, I couldn't go before a judge and say, well, you know, Your Honor, my client really thinks this is what the law is and ought to apply to him. My client doesn't think this is fair because you know what the judge is going to say. Right, Richard? Yeah, he doesn't care what you think. He cares what the statute says or what other decisions that he's bound by say. That's all he looks at. So therefore, if I'm going to go before him, I've got to use the same standard. Now, here's where that applies. I get people that come to me, and, or even some books I read, that say, you know, you ought to feel good about yourself because God's like this, or you ought to feel good about yourself because God wouldn't do that. I mean, there's a whole doctrine out there, and it's not new, that there is no hell because a loving God wouldn't do that. Here's what that is. That's man deciding what God's like based on what he thinks God's like. And then influencing thousands of people to do the same thing. My simple view is this. If God's a righteous judge, and and he is, then he's going to give us the standard by which he's going to expect things to be done. And that's what this book is. So the only place I can look with absolute assurance to know what he's like and what he's done is the law book is the book He's given us. So there can be 14 books in my bookshelf that say God loves me and all that, and that's wonderful, but ultimately what's going to give me the confidence is to read those words from the one I'm going to stand in front of, and as much as I love you and respect you, or love and respect my teachers in Bible school, it's not going to move me. It's when I see what God says about it that's going to give me confidence. Somebody else can help me to understand this, Somebody else can encourage me and pick me up, but ultimately it's going to be what God says about it. And here's what God says about you. Thought I was going to drop him, didn't you? <laughs> Having been justified by faith, and you raised your hand, we have peace. With God. So God's saying about you, He's not mad at you. God's saying about you, He's not disappointed. God's saying about you, from my side, I have peace with you. I'm at peace with you. We're the ones struggling, trying to get that peace, when God said, I've given it. See, what, 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 what creates the peace from God's side is the cross. Not you. What creates the peace from God's side towards you isn't you. And how faithful you prayed, how well you read your Bible today, or what you did right, or what you... It had, his peace towards you has nothing to do with anything you've ever done. His peace towards you... Look at it. What does it say? Through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. His peace towards you is not based on anything you've done or not done, can do or won't do. Remember when he announced the peace? He didn't announce the peace when you prayed for somebody today. He didn't announce the peace when you had 14 straight weeks where you showed up on Sunday. He didn't have peace with you when you came this morning, that Sunday morning it snowed. He announced peace towards you when he sent his son to be born in that manger in Bethlehem. That's when he announced peace towards men. The problem is we don't do it based on God's word. We do it based on what people say, how we feel, what I think, what things look like to me. That's not faith in what God says. Getting this? And here's why that's so important. And God's been shaking me about this lately. He said, son, you spend too much time going back and trying to reestablish your relationship with me every day. So you're, it's like going back and repouring the foundation. Dig it up, check it out, pour it all over again. You know what? When you do that, you don't get very far. The Lord's been speaking to me. He says, there are things I want done and things I want overcome and you won't ever get to them if you don't get past this fact. I'm not mad at you. And then I, wo- I realized this morning, wow, that's exactly why this is part of the armor. Because if the enemy can get you to continue checking your feet and fixing your feet, and, and putting salve on your feet and changing your shoes and changing your shoelaces and doing this with your feet. Guess what you're not doing? You're not looking at your enemy. You're not fighting your enemy. You're not overcoming. You're trying to reestablish the foundation on which you stand. That's why God wants it established on the gospel of peace. That he's not angry at you. Not because of you, but through Christ Jesus on the cross. There's where his anger was poured out for you. Now, there is an anger of God. Look at verse 9. Much more than now having been justified by his blood. Oh, this is good. We shall be saved from wrath, anger, through Him, through Christ. Having been justified by His blood, you will be saved from God's anger. God's not angry at you. Not because of you, but because of Christ Jesus. This is where we get stuck. We think everything revolves around us. Uh, your ego's going to get shattered right now. <laughs> Nothing revolves around you in God's kingdom. Now, God needs you for certain things, but nothing about what God's doing in your life revolves around you. You're not anywhere near as important 
in this process as you think you are. Other than you're necessary to receive it. Second Thessalonians verse one, chapter 1. In here somewhere. Verse 6. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who give to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Look at this, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. Boy, if there's anything that motive, ought to motivate us to get out there and get to work, it's that. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from, a whole, from the glory of His power. Now, how can you get out of that? There's no hell. You say, well, that's scary stuff. But that's for those who don't know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you've been justified. That's what you've been saved from. That's what you've been... You have been delivered from that. The enemy wants you focused on that. He wants you worried about where you stand with God. He wants you to question whether God's angry at you or not. Why? Because while you're doing that, you don't have any confidence to stand against his devices. So you need to settle once and for all. Well, let's go to um, Romans, uh, Colossians 1. We've got to settle once and for all by faith that God is not angry at us. We have peace with God. But that peace is through Jesus and it's not through us. Colossians 1. Verse 20, well, verse 19. And it pleased the Father that in Him, that's in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him, that's by Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Reconciled means brought back into right relationship. God's not angry at you. God's not angry at you. If you have a question about that, you're going to be more concerned with Him than you are with the enemy. And say that again. If you've got a question about whether God's angry at you, you're going to be more focused on Him than you are the enemy, which is exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Now, we can't, you know, we're not lifting the enemy up. And we're strong in the, His power and His might. But if you're worried about what God... Because if it's, after all, <laughs> this is God's armor we're putting on. And if we think the guy who we're putting on is angry at us, we're not going to have confidence in the armor. 
And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That cross is everything. Everything we have with God is through that cross. And we forget that. I mean, we get saved by coming to the cross. But somehow we forget that. We think that after the cross, it's now me. (laughs) It's always the cross. It's always the cross. There are things to grow in after that. There's holiness. There's God. God, that's the opening door. But everything's still based on the cross. In the tabernacle, when you came into the outer courtyard, the first thing you encountered was the brazen altar, which is this fiery furnace burning animals 24 hours a day. And it was, it, the temperatures they estimate was around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And it represents the, the, it represents the fire of God's anger on the cross, burning up the sacrifice. So it represents the cross. And then they went past that they would go past that to the, to the laver, which contained water, which represents the washing of the water of the Word. And then they would enter into the first of the two rooms, which was the, the holy place. And in that room, it was lit up by the candelabra that was in there, which represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And there was a table there that what they would eat at. It couldn't sit down. There were no chairs in this place because a chair represented the work was done. So they would stand up and eat around this table, this showbread, and it was the, pre- the bread of the presence, which represented fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. They could only do that because they'd come past the, the altar that the cross represented. Then the high priest once a year would go in, and there was, a, there was another little altar in there, a gold altar, that had incense burning on it. And that represented prayer, and that was right at the veil that would take you into the Holy of Holies, which was God's presence. The coal that burned on that altar that represented prayer and filled this room with the presence, the fragrance of the presence of God, that coal came from the brazen altar where the sacrifice was made. So the very substance by which they were able to worship God symbolically in this room was the fire of what was done at the altar a burning at the brazen altar where they started out. In the same way, although we grow past the cross in the sense of we grow into other things we learn, we can grow into a fellowship with God, into the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and all of that. We grow into that, but the root of who we are and our standing before God never changes. It's always still the cross. It's always, because once it stops being the cross, it starts becoming us. It's because I've done a good job from the brazen altar to here. No, 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 no. It's because of what was done at the cross that I can do anything before God. My standing before God every day. My ability to come as a child of God to pray every day, to listen to Him, to expect His Spirit to speak, is because of the cross. It's because of the blood of Jesus shed on that cross. And when you begin to renew your mind to that and focus your mind down on that, then it takes the pressure off of you and you can begin to enter into this peace that God has with us. I'll close with this scripture. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now all things are of God, which has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus. And is, excuse me, verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new, have become new. 
And then it goes on to say in verse uh, 18, Now all these things are of God who has reconciled us to himself, who has reconciled him to us, who has reconciled, who has reconciled us to himself, who has reconciled, not will be, not is in the process of it, he has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us this word of reconciliation. And I think the reason more Christians don't share that word of reconciliation is they're not settled in their own heart that they've been reconciled with God. So the foundation of peace, the first part, the really first part of the foundation of peace that we need in order to stand solidly in the spiritual battle is to understand and accept by faith that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive that and we walk in that every day by faith and not how we feel and not how we think and not how we interpret everything. We simply take God's word, say, Father, I accept your word because it's what it says so. I believe your word regardless of what I feel or think about myself today. And therefore, I have peace with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I accept that peace and I walk in that peace. And once you do that, you have to decide to not step out of that peace. Because challenges will come to you. And you have to decide to receive it by faith. 